You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by paleontologist Natalia Villavicencio uh, here from the Department of Integrative Biology here at UC Berkeley. Uh, welcome, Natalia. Or should I call you Dr. Natalia? <laughs> Hello. Uh, Natalia is fine. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. you are officially a doctor? Yeah, I just graduated on December, this past December. So I'm a doctor now. Congratulations. Thank you. No easy feat. I know that. <laughs> um, and hopefully I'll be right there with you before too long. Yeah. But, uh, no. So you came out of integrative biology, and I called you a paleontologist, but you also call yourself a paleoecologist. Yes. Yeah, I think that's more specific. I like that way because I'm not, like, describing new species of fossils or, like, doing taxonomy. So that's, for me, more like pure paleontology, I would say. Um, I like paleoecologists because what I'm doing is mostly trying to see... Uh, ecological processes in the past. Uh, so how do you go about looking at an ecological process in the past? How do you see a process in the past at all? So I think what you see is, of course, the result of a process. So in my case, I work on late Pleistocene extinctions. That's the extinction of the last Ice Age mammals. Uh, what I have is an extinction event. And I just go back and try to see why that happened. So I just search for evidence that can tell me how these things were becoming extinct, uh, what was happening around at the time, and see if I can make any relation or establish any relation among them to try to come up with an answer. Or a... So you said uh, late Pleistocene extinction. Is that that's not the one that killed the dinosaurs? Then no, it's not the one that killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> so that's much more recent. Right? Yeah, it's much more recent. So I work in the time frame of the last uh, fifty thousand years before present. I would say that because that's like my technical limit or the the time limit I have with the methods I use. But yeah, yeah. So I work in that time frame, and at the time, these animals were coexisting with humans. And even if landscapes on Earth were different, we had already the same continents we have today. We have most of the mountain ranges we can see today. Is just it was just colder, and climate was changing. And what part of the world is this? I work in South America. Okay, yeah. South America. So up to 50,000 years ago, and there were people during this time? Yeah, so people arrived to South America, let's say, at about 14,000 around that time. And yeah, they arrived to the continent and they started spreading out or spreading all over. Do you think most people would be surprised to know that people have been living in South America for 14,000 years? Yeah, it is possible. For me, it's not surprising anymore, but yeah, yeah, I guess. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, we definitely think of our, you know, the United States as being a, a young country because it's only a couple hundred years old. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. 14,000 is a pretty long time because <laughs> I assume they came through North Amer America. Yeah, 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 they, they came through North America. One of the interesting things is that, uh, so when people were studying the arrival of humans into the American continent, they were expecting to have all their evidence in North America and actually like the clearest evidence and the oldest one is from South America. So 
that's how weird. Sorry, but maybe. Yeah, but, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so we're going to come back to that. But first, I'll ask, so how did, I mean, this may be obvious or maybe I'm totally wrong, but how did you become interested in South America per se? Oh, so I'm from South America. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm from Chile and... Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's the reason. It's the continent I know the most, I would say. I've been living there, I've traveled there, so coming here and start a research project that is related to South America, I think it makes it easier for me, more familiar. I'm more familiar with the continent, the history and And did you do your undergraduate in South America in Chile? Yeah, in Chile. Yeah, in Universidad Católica de Chile. Oh, okay. Santiago, yeah. So did they teach you paleontology at the Catholic University? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they teach evolution in the Catholic University, yeah. That's, That's not great. a problem. <laughs> so did you do any research as an undergraduate? Yeah, so um, at least during two years or three years of my, during my undergrad, I did research um in the Atacama Desert. I was already part of the Department of Ecology there. And I joined a, a lab that it was related to paleoecology and paleoclimate. And, and I did some research trying to reconstruct the climate or the past climate changes in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. So how do you go about understanding the past climate in a desert? Yeah, so the Atacama is today known as the driest desert on Earth. Uh, actually, there are places that don't receive more than two millimeters of precipitation per year. Wow. Or even less than one millimeter. But you have like the core of the desert, but surrounded, there are some plant communities living. And these plant communities have been dynamic or they have moved around the landscape during the past 50,000 years. So, and that's related to changes in precipitation mainly. Uh, so today these plants, the place where they live and their distribution is determined mostly by precipitation. And what we were trying to see is we were going to the driest parts, parts of the desert and we were looking for plant records that could tell us what plants were living there and when. So we, we find at some point like... Yeah, like traces of plants that have lived in what is today like the driest part of the desert. And they lived there, I don't know, 20,000 years ago. And we could relate that to the precipitation that probably was in place. And So are you looking for plant fossils? Yeah, they're like sub-fossils, I would say. They're pretty recent uh, and they don't look like rocks at all. So yeah, we call them like sub-fossils or something. Okay, but I know there's more to the story because you told yeah. me about the rats on the way up. So how does that so, fit yeah. in? Basically, the record uh, we were using in the Atacama, it was rat middens or rat poop. So rat middens are like, it's a concretion of poop and urine that becomes harder and harder because it's super dry. The environment is super dry. So... What we use is, okay, in the desert, there are these little rats living around and they use little caves to like be protected. And they go out, they go around and they collect what they found, let's say 50 meters around their home. And they collect plants and things and they bring them inside this cave and they live in the cave, they poop in the cave, um, and they die in the cave. 
And with time, we have like this preserved like concretion of poop and urine that has inside plant remains, um, skeletons of little rats. And we go, we take these, we dissolve them in water, we radiocarbon date them to know how old these middens were. And we identify the plants we found inside, the animal remains, and we reconstructed the ecosystem at that time using all that evidence. So did you find that most of the plants in the middens still exist in the desert now? They exist in the desert, but in the higher part of the Andes, where they receive precipitation, like enough precipitation to survive. So, yeah, the most interesting thing is that we found these middens in the middle of the desert where no plants are today, but we could find that in the past 20,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, there were grasses living in that place. So that meant that the precipitation in the driest part of the desert wasn't, was enough to keep grasses or other plants living there. So it seems like the climate has changed, or like yeah. the ecosystems changed, the precipitations changed, and so the de desert does look different than it did yeah. in the yeah. past. Very cool. So uh, it sounds like you've been interested in paleontology, or at least understanding the past for a really long time then. Yeah, yeah. So were you a little kid out in your backyard trying to dig up uh, fossils, or how did you get involved in that? So I was thinking about that, and I think I can... I, I'm the youngest in my family. I have two older brothers, and one of them, we used to spend a lot of time together, and I think I have to blame him, him for, like, developing this interest in me. Um, so when, when he was old enough to drive, um, and he was always interested in geology, even if he's not a geologist, but... Uh, when he was old enough to drive, he used to take me to the Andes all the time to collect fossils. He knew where to find them. So we were like mashing rocks for the whole day, finding ammonites and marine fossils. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's the time. I probably was 12, 14 years old. And that was the time when I started. It sounds like a very influential yeah. experience. And what what brought you to Berkeley? Yeah, I guess when I was like about 14, 15, my other brother, the eldest one, was standing abroad and I visited him. Um, he was in Europe and that was like my first time going out in a long trip, like taking a plane for more than 10 hours. And I think all the experience, I, I just really like it. And I said, okay, when I'm older, I want to study abroad and have the experience of living in another country. And when until I was studying biology, I also realized that uh, one natural step to keep being a scientist was to do a PhD and keep studying. Yeah, and I tried to pursue like a path that could led me to go outside my country. I That was my idea in mind all the time. And when I was an undergrad there, I met who was my supervisor here in Berkeley. He was on sabbatical in Santiago. Uh, so I just met him. I liked the research he did. Um, he was a good friend with my former supervisor in Chile. So everything came natural and just when the moment came, I just asked him if I could apply with him, and he said yes, and 
And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calex. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I'm joined by Natalia Via Vicencio, uh, recently finished up in the Department of Integrative Biology, and she's telling us about her work in paleontology and paleoecology and uh, how she came from Chile and doing research in the, the desert there, reconstructing past climates, and then ended up at Berkeley. And uh, so you said you worked on mass extinctions in South America, at least the one from the last ice age. And what kind of animals went extinct during that period? So the interesting thing, so this extinction is not one, is not, it doesn't qualify yet as one of the massive ones like... The one that killed the dinosaurs is one of the top five extinctions that we have witnessed in like Earth history. But one interesting thing about this last extinction, the one that happened during the last ice age, is that most of the big mammals became extinct. So to put a boundary on it, scientists have agreed upon a boundary of Everything or most of the things above 44 kilograms, that's 100 pounds, became extinct. Almost everywhere in on Earth except for Africa. That, that is the continent where just a few extinctions happened. And is the continent when, where we see all these big animals still living. We see elephants, zebras, and many big things. They are still there. So, for example, if we look at America, whole America, North and South uh, during the last ice age, there were things like elephants living here, mammoths, mastodons, gomphotheres. Uh, they were what's a what's a gomphotheer? It's Sorry. like an elephant. Oh, okay. It's like a Sorry. mastodont, <laughs> but it's different. Okay. So, uh, yeah, they they originated in North America and then they migrated to South America, and it's the only elephant-like thing we have in South America. Okay. We didn't have the other ones. Uh, uh, there were like giant armadillos of the size of a Mini Cooper car. Whoa. Like super big. There were giant ground slots, uh, horses, other type of herbivores that don't exist anymore. Yeah, so all these big things became extinct. And if you make the comparison between North America and South America, uh, North America still has, I would say, more big things like like deers are pretty abundant, uh, bears, mountain lions. In South America, there are just a few big things left, like one species of bear that is super hard to find and lives only in the high Andes of Colombia and Ecuador, for example. Is that the, the sun bear? Is this um I think it's the sun bear, right? Or like the spectacled bear? A spectacled bear. Spectacled yeah, bear. That's yeah, the yeah. One. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's also the anteojos, I think, in Spanish or something mm-hmm. like that. They are like two species of camels. Um I I mean it's very poor now in terms of what big things you can find. Very particular, very specific to South America, I would say the giant ground slots that they made it to North America too, but the biggest ones were in South America. A lot of giant armadillos too. Those are like the most like interesting things from South America. 
Yeah, because I remember in the American Museum in New York City, they have the skeleton of a ground sloth, and it's like the size of a van, right? Yeah, they were no, enormous. they're huge, like two tones or even more, like three t- and they And humans existed at the same time Along, as them. Yeah. That's just so crazy to think about. So for so some people might be more familiar with the La Brea Tar Pits mm-hmm. in uh, Los Angeles. So are we talking about the same time? It's, yeah, it's exactly the same time, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so all these things went extinct. There were humans, and you're interested in understanding what made them go extinct. So how do you study that? Is There's no rat middens for this one, right? <laughs> so uh, for more than four decades now, the possible causes of this extinction have been or climate change, because the climate was changing from a last ice age going through the present climate or current climate. And uh, humans that were arriving and probably hunting these animals and they were like a new species in an ecosystem. So, yeah, for several decades, people have argued, no, it was one cause were humans. No, it was climate change. And now people are more like comfortable to thinking that was a mixture of both, like a combination. And to try to understand which one could have been like more important. Uh, what I'm doing is to try to look or, or research or understand the problem based like on a regional basis. Like let's say just study the high Andes of Peru and northern Chile. What was happening there? What animals were living there? When humans arrived there, specifically in that area, how were the climate changes in the area? And seeing which, like, were they happening at the same time? Okay, if I have humans arriving and horses becoming extinct immediately, could maybe they be more related uh, than if I have the horses leaving the area and climate just changed and nothing happened to the horses, but human arrives, humans arrived and then disappear. Then the horses disappear. I could say, okay, maybe... It was more like a human cause. So just that's the way. It's like to put all the pieces together and see the timing of each piece of the like puzzle and try to come up with a story that can explain the pattern you see in the data. So a lot of it is dependent on having dates then, dating. Yeah. So how do you date these things? Okay, so we use radiocarbon dating to use radiocarbon data, what you need is organic matter. So basically what I need is fossils that are not as fossils. They are not rocks. So they are, they are still like pieces of fresh bone or skin or dung of these animals. And this technique uh, goes far back up to 50,000. So that's my time frame. That's the limit I have. In all the records, so for human presence in the area, people, archaeologists use radiocarbon dating. In my case, to know when these animals became extinct or to have an idea when they were living in a landscape, I use radiocarbon dating on different pieces of bone and skin of these animals. And to reconstruct climate, people also use radiocarbon dating to date the records they have for pollen changes that indicate changes in vegetation or for um, other types of records that we use. So mostly radiocarbon dating. And then where do you get these pieces of bone and skin that you personally radiocarbon date? 
So um, when I came to Berkeley and when I started working in this project and tried to understand the extinction of these animals in South America, my supervisor already had a grant uh, where he was collaborating with many colleagues in South America. And the idea was to radiocarbon date many specimens of extinct megafauna. So I started working on that and my, my work was mainly to process samples and radiocarbon date them. In that, many colleagues send us samples from their own excavations, but other part of my research was also go to museum collections and take little pieces of bone from, from fossils they had there. With permission. With permission, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with permission. So, for example, I visited the museum in Santiago in Chile and I asked them for pieces of a couple of specimens they have. I traveled over Europe because many of the fossils from South America ended up in the United States or Europe. I went to the American Museum in New York, a film museum in Chicago, and several museums in Europe and where, where they have specimens that I could sample. So are all these museums pretty much the same in terms of you as a researcher? It doesn't matter if it's in Europe or United States, right? They have a public exhibit usually, and then they have the collections in the back. Yeah. So when you get in the collections, it's kind of like you've been there before, you understand the process, or are they very different? No, no, they're very similar, yeah. I mean, in some of them, I can stay working later. Some of them are more flexible with that. Like, no, you have to leave at five on some of them. No, you can stay all night if you want. But in terms of the organization of the collections, they're pretty similar. There are some that are more messy than others, but no, they're pretty similar. So do you have any uh, findings? Now that they've given you the PhD, you must have at least a few findings you can tell us about here on the show. So for my PhD, I would say, okay, the, the most interesting thing is that I looked at the extinction event in three different regions of the South American continent. One was uh, the southern tip of South America, that's southern Patagonia in Chile. So what I did it, there, it was, it was to use information that was already published. I was just pulling out information about radiocarbon dates on extinct megafauna, radiocarbon dates on the arrival of humans and presence of humans, and data about climate and vegetation changes. So I put everything together and I compared the different records. And one interesting finding there was that extinct megafauna and humans coexisted for several thousand years. So we don't have that that scenario that where like humans arrive and they kill everything immediately and everything becomes extinct. No, they coexisted for some time and actually some species uh, disappear from the landscape when vegetation change. So uh, one of my conclusions that, that what it was that maybe vegetation changes had more to do with the extinction of these animals here than human impacts. Uh, then I looked, so this was using pub, uh, information that was already out in like published. But then, using the radiocarbon dating work I did, I was able to get more dates for the high central Andes of Peru in South America. 
it was a place where only three radiocarbon dates on extinct megafauna were known. And I was able to maybe get 10 more or something, which it's a lot. Yeah. And with that information, what we see for now is that uh, humans arrived and like the animals disappear om almost like instantly. So we don't know yet if maybe they were already growing like extinct when humans arrived or if humans had something to do like super immediately. And the other region I look is the Lake District in southern Chile, where we also see humans coexisting with gonfotheres that are these elephant-like animals for at least 2,000 years. These animals disappear in at the time where there was a cooling event in climate. So maybe it's more related with that, that with humans. So in terms of today in our world, I mean, we know that humans are obviously having an impact on extinctions, right? Because we hear about poaching, we hear about changing habitats. But does your research also suggest that climate change, as we're hearing from so many scientists, could lead to extinctions in animals now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course. And I think uh, the, the most interesting thing is that what I'm seeing from the past is to see a combination of both. If a combination of climate changes and human impacts, how how they can drive to extinction, how they can drive some species to extinction. And that's what we have today. Today we have climate changing and we have human impacts increasing in different parts of the world. And yeah, we, we, we can expect that in, I don't know, a couple of hundreds of years, many animals are going to go extinct if we don't do much about it. <laughs> yeah. So in the in these last couple of minutes, I will ask now, since this was a natural segue, um, yeah, what do you have anything you want to tell the public about climate change or about human impacts or anything about science that you feel like, uh, you know, a viewpoint that you want to express? Yeah, I think I, I it would be related to the last thing I said, I think. Uh so if in the past we saw that humans that were like a handful of humans or like very uh, small populations of humans could have impacts on these big animals and in populations of animals, uh, we can expect that today large populations of humans can have like the same impact. So yeah, it's important to start thinking about the impact that humans have and if we want to prevent extinctions or if we want to save species we we have to act now and if not it's gonna be like a, like it's gonna happen like yeah yeah no it's, it's already happening yeah right? it's happening yeah, yeah. okay la last question uh do you have any advice for students who are interested in paleontology or even not maybe students who want to study it or just people who are just interested in paleontology, what what can they do to learn more about your field of research? I mean, for people who want to study, it's just, I mean, if you like it, just find the ways to do it. I, I remember me as an undergrad, maybe I, have, I had a clear idea in mind. I knew I wanted something related to ecology. So I remember in my first or second years of uh, like my undergrad studies, 
I had the opportunity to just go and work with with grad students and I just took it and I started learning and it's the fun part. So doing research, if you have the opportunity to go out to the field or help in a lab, you learn a lot and you become familiar with what it means to be a scientist. So it's a good way to find out if you really like it or if you prefer something else. So I would say if you have the opportunity, even if you think you don't have time or you are not like going to get any grade out of it, you just take it because it's what it teaches you more than just books and things like that. Yeah, and I guess we can promo Cal Day because that's going to be in April. And I think the UCMP, the Museum of Paleontology here on campus, is the only paleontology museum in the close area, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Cal Day in April is the only time people are allowed inside the general public. So maybe put that on your calendar if you want to see some fossils, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, there is that exhibit in our building, Valley Life Sciences. They have um, some dinosaur exhibits and they have some human evolution exhibits and some, I think, even fossil invertebrates. Yeah, yeah, I think they have that. Mini collection. Yeah, and... and I mean, just in UC Berkeley, you have like six natural history museums, I would say. And Cali is a good opportunity to know all of them. So, yeah, yeah, it's a good place where to go. It's a good place to be. And uh, we're sorry to lose you. Uh, uh, as you're, But you've done your time. You've got your degree and uh, ready to I'm move ready. on. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today, Um, Natalia. Uh, Yeah, you've been listening to The Graduates here on 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I've been joined by paleontologist Natalia Villavicencio from the Department of Integrated Biology. Uh, who sh- she's been telling us about her work on paleoclimate, understanding past ecosystems, understanding extinctions in uh, South America and all of the Americas, and just the impacts that humans and climate change together have on driving animals to extinction in the past and probably now in the present too. But uh, it's been great hearing from you. And the graduates will be back in another two weeks with another episode. So stay tuned. Keep the dial here on 90.7 FM, Cal.